Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, a call for Canada to do better. There are many Canadians, it's hard to quantify, that have suffered in silence for years. After Michael Chong's testimony to the Procedures and House Affairs Committee, we examine his recommendations to address foreign interference and MP intimidation. We will speak with former National Security Advisor Richard Fadden to get his assessment. Also, Canada is ready to strengthen our partnership with friends like Korea on everything. The Prime Minister in Seoul. Why is it important to shore up relations with South Korea now? We'll take a look at both trade and security implications. Plus, making it tougher for repeat violent offenders to get bail. Will it lead to greater safety? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. Michael Chong knows firsthand what it's like to be targeted by the People's Republic of China. His story now well known after being shared by many media outlets for the last few weeks. It has resulted in the expulsion of a Chinese diplomat and raises serious questions about why a member of parliament was not informed that the PRC was trying to intimidate him by looking into his family in Hong Kong. For the Conservative MP, the failure is ultimately a failure of the Trudeau government. And as a result, he is calling for major changes. It's not just my case. It's the fact that behind my case, there are, there are many Canadians, it's hard to quantify, that have suffered in silence for years. We've heard stories about people in tears who have been targeted by authoritarian states. And for too long, uh, the government hasn't taken action uh, to defend them here on Canadian soil. Look, we don't have much, uh, we don't have any jurisdiction outside of Canada to enforce Canadian law outside of Canada, but surely we can do a good job here in defending Canadians here on Canadian soil who are being targeted here at home by agents acting on behalf of authoritarian states. Joining us now is Richard Fadden, former Deputy Minister of Defence, former CSIS Director and former National Security Advisor. Mr. Fadden, thank you for joining us again. Good to be with you. Listen, I want to start here uh, with Mr. Chong's uh, assertion that these attempts by foreign actors to interfere would not have happened uh, if Canada had a better system of publicizing the names of agents or diplomats who try to influence or intimidate members of Parliament. Uh, do you agree with that assessment? Well, I agree in general. I think it's never possible to state with absolute certainty that you could have avoided something like that. But I do think if we'd had a foreign agent's uh, registry system, if, we, if foreign interference were a crime, and if generally speaking, I think if the government had attached more importance to the general issue of foreign, foreign interference, rather, I think the chances would have been much less that he would have been subjected to the interference that he was. Now, Mr. Chong also says that the uh, current structure of NSCOP is insufficient. Right now, it's uh, made up of MPs and senders selected by the Prime Minister, as you know. And Mr. Chong wants that to come under the purview of Parliament with more frequent reports on foreign interference. I'm wondering what your assessment of that would be. Would that actually serve as a better deterrent against foreign interference? Well, I'm not sure how it would have that immediate impact. Uh, also, Mr. Chong suggesting 
suggestion is really uh, going to one of the more fundamental principles of our parliamentary system, which is that parliament and parliamentary committees do not have access to classified information except with the specific approval of a minister or of the prime minister. So moving NSCOP to become a regular parliamentary committee, giving it access to all of the things that it has access to right now, would change this really basic principle. It may be worth doing this, uh, but I think there's more involved here than just shifting it to a committee of parliament. I think generally speaking, um, Canadians, the Can Canadian governments, plural, have been much, much more reticent than Australians or uh, the Brits to make national security information available. So I don't know if it's necessary to go that far. If after looking at all the ramifications, it was considered to be a useful thing to do, that's fine. But one of the things we have to remember is that national security secrets will remain national security secrets. And the, the members of the committee would not be able to use that information in their partisan byplay in Parliament. So there's a balancing act here to, find, to be found somewhere. Okay, balancing act. I'm wondering if it's through an example, because you, you mentioned both Australia and, and the UK. Can you describe uh, for us what they actually do and how Canada might benefit from that? Well, both of them, uh, Australia in particular, has a foreign uh, agents registration program. So I think that's now being considered actively by the government and probably will end up with one. I don't think that's a uh, silver bullet, but it will certainly go some distance, I think, to making things easier. In terms of making uh, classified information available to Parliament, both Australia and the United Kingdom have permanent committees, standing committees, special committees that are set up in order to receive this kind of information. But overlying this is a greater reluctance on the, pa on the part of the UK and the Australian governments to talk about these things. And I think it's a good example of how you can talk about national security issues by aggregating them up a level or two, uh, and thereby protecting the secrets while, while making the basic point. So all around this, I do believe Mr. Chung is right, and others are correct when they say that greater transparency, greater, pub greater public information would be beneficial. The more we talk about this, I think the more we will be alert to the possibility of foreign interference, and the less likely it will be that uh, people like the former consular official in Toronto and others will, will succeed. Mm -hmm. Now, Mr. Chong also wants uh, the Procedures Committee to, to track what happened to that CSIS report that uh, spoke about that expelled diplomat, uh, Zhao Wei, uh, and also about the intimidation that essentially targeted Mr. Chong's family in Hong Kong. As a former national security advisor, I'm wondering if you've ever considered what happened here. How is it possible that the report was sent to the Privy Council and to relevant government departments, apparently, uh, but not seen by the Prime Minister or his Public Safety Minister? Well... Acknowledging, first of all, that I haven't seen all this documentation, so I, I am to some degree speculating, but I don't understand that. Uh, uh, all of these departments would have shared this information as a matter of routine with selected members of the political staff who have been designated and cleared to, to see the material. And if indeed it was sent to the PCO, to public safety, uh, to GAC, for example, I do not understand why it would not have been sent on to... Uh, ministers and or the prime minister. Um, it's the only reason I can think of is that the threshold uh, for reporting such things to ministers had not been met, but that would have to be a very, very high threshold Threshold indeed. Certainly when I was CSIS director, if I heard that a parliamentarian uh, was at risk, I would have made sure that the system knew about it. 
And in fact, that's true of any Canadian. It doesn't matter if it's a parliamentarian, the Cardinal Archbishop of Quebec, or the Chief Justice of, of Alberta. Uh, if there's a real threat, something needs to be done. And that may vary in particular circumstances. But when you're dealing with parliamentarians, I think uh, public servants uh, are a bit reticent to deal with them directly. So the thing to do is to pass it on to ministers and prime ministers. So I don't have an answer to your question. I don't understand why, given the PCO has had, had the material, it was not passed on, certainly to the PMO and even the prime minister himself. You know, uh, it was interesting to, to, again, hear Mr. Chong yesterday because he was talking about how the government's handling or mishandling of the situation essentially diminishes Canada's reputation amongst its security partners, in particular with the Five Eyes. Uh, do you agree with that? I don't think we've been coming, covering ourselves with glory here. Uh, so to a considerable degree, I agree with him. Uh, on the other hand, all of the Five Eyes have had problems in this area over the over the years. But it seems to me that the main issue here has been the relative reluctance of the government to act, not just on Mr. Chung, but on, for example, you know, the NSCOP committee uh, after the 19th election and the 20th election uh, made a series of recommendations. They were not by and large implemented. So there's a certain sense that we're not really moving forward with any sense of urgency to deal with the broad issue. That, I think, would be worrisome for any democracy. Richard Fadden, always appreciate your thought and your time. Thank you for that. My pleasure. As we told you yesterday, the federal justice minister announced new reforms to make it tougher for repeat violent offenders to get bail. They've not yet been passed, but if they are, these reforms would apply a reverse onus on repeat offenders who are charged with crimes involving weapons and if a crime involves intimate partner violence. In essence, rather than Crown attorneys arguing why a defendant should be denied bail, defense lawyers would have to argue why their client should be allowed to get it. Joining us now is lawyer Danielle Robitaille. She has defended individuals and corporations charged with criminal offenses. She is also the managing partner at Henan Hutchison Robitaille. Ms. Robitaille, thank you for joining us. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm good. Uh, now, as you know, these proposals that were announced yesterday, really, this really is a response uh, to the provinces and territories who have been looking to Ottawa to make it harder for repeat violent offenders to get bail. And already we, we, we've heard from a number of provinces. They say they are encouraged by these uh, proposed reforms. What's your assessment of what's been announced? Well, I, I can tell you, Michael, that I've been chatting with my colleagues who uh, are in the courts day in and day out, and the overwhelming response of, of lawyers, criminal lawyers, both Crown and Defence, is this is really um, tinkering around the edges, uh, and it really sends the wrong message to Canadians about what is really wrong and what's really broken about our bail system. So that's really the concern that I'm hearing from criminal lawyers, that really the, the efforts and the legislative amendments should be directed at what we are seeing on the ground, which is the over-incarceration of Indigenous people, racialized accused. We're seeing that our jails in Ontario, 70% of the population in our jails in Toronto, uh, in Ontario rather, are made up of people who are awaiting their trial. So they're, they're legally presumed in, innocent, uh, and nonetheless, they are incarcerated. 
Uh, and so that that's really the concern today uh, on the ground for people who are in the trenches uh, uh, working the courts. Okay, can we build on that though? Because for the average Canadian, what they are hearing uh, is this call to to make sure that repeat violent offenders are not uh, taken in and then released by the courts. How is that not in keeping with, at the same time, protecting uh, Indigenous individuals, uh, uh, racialized individuals who, as you say, are overrepresented in, in the justice system? Yeah, so I think it, you know it's really important for Canadians to understand that we all have a right to reasonable bail. And it's protected uh, in our constitution. It's protected under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. We're also presumed innocent until found guilty uh, after a trial. And so any legislative amendments that are made will, will be made under that umbrella, under those constitutional, constitutionally protected rights. And so um, these reversals, these reversals of onus are not likely going to change very much in, in terms of how bails proceed in our system. And I think the concern is that there were a number of really terrible human tragedies that happened recently. And we see this, right? We see governments respond, and it's a, there's a little bit of uh, po political opportunism here. Um, and we see that on both sides of the aisle, um, that there is a knee-jerk response for legislative reform that doesn't take into account a system-wide perspective of what, what's really happening. And so when you respond to uh, isolated cases, you make bad law. And I, and I think that's what we've seen here today. And the message that's being conveyed to the courts, to the justice of the peace and the judges that make this decision, these decisions is we'd like you to hold back more people. And we know uh, as criminal lawyers, we know that they're already holding people, uh, way more people than they ought to be. People who are presumed innocent, they're legally innocent, they're waiting their trial. And so, you know, I think what, what we would be looking for, people who uh, work in the system, are investments that would go towards improving outcomes for um, the marginalized uh, accused and, and the victims of crime. But those are expensive, they're complicated, they don't make for sexy sound bites, and it's really unfortunate, but we see time and time again that these issues don't get the airtime that they deserve. You, you talk about catchy sound bites, and certainly a phrase that we keep hearing over and over again is the current system, if left unchanged, is what uh, some conservative members of parliament describe as a catch and release system. Uh, what do you say to that? You know, I, I do think it's a good sound bite. I, I think um, that uh, it's, a, it, it's extremely attractive and it sounds tough and and macho when we say things like jail, not not bail, but it ignores the constitutional reality. It ignores our founding principles. And what we have decided as a community is that you are presumed innocent uh, until you're proven guilty and that you have a right to reasonable bail. And what we know and what statisticians and social scientists have been saying for generations now is that warehousing people for longer and longer periods of time does nothing to keep our communities safe. And so it sounds great, you look tough, you look principled, but it has zero impact on the lived realities of people who are most impacted by crime and violence. Of the people who are right now 
being incarcerated, denied bail, how many of those cases proved to be, uh, come to an, a not guilty uh, verdict or an innocent verdict? Uh, well, that, that's a great question. It really varies uh, by offense. So you see that certain offenses um, are a coin toss. There's there's outcomes in uh, in the 50-50 uh, range uh, for those cases that go to trial. But of course, most cases don't proceed to trial. Most cases end in a resolution, uh, normally a guilty plea. And the concern with holding people and not releasing them on bail is that what you do is, and, and there have been studies that show this, you induce false guilty pleas. You know, the thirst for liberty is uh, much higher than a thirst for justice when you've been sitting in a cell for a long time. And so what we see is that people, when they're detained, they're far more likely to plead guilty to something they didn't do or something for which they had a, a valid charter defense to argue uh, because they want to get out. And so... If these changes result in uh, tougher uh, uh, and, and barriers to bail, I think what we are going to see, I think the downstream outcome uh, is more likely to be false guilty pleas and more miscarriages of justice, you know, wrongful convictions. That's the concern that we should have as a, a community when we make these knee-jerk uh, legislative reforms. Do you think uh, these, these proposals, these reforms will stand up to, uh, to a court challenge? I think they will. Um, you know, we have seen um, that reverse onus uh, challenges uh, have failed in the past. And so uh, I, I think these reforms will pass charter charter scrutiny. I think the broader concern is, you know, why are we putting our energy and our effort and um, and 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 our, our time in into these these sorts of matters? This is not really what is wrong with our system. Um, and it's always a mistake to zero in on a couple sensational, difficult, tragic cases. Um, what is the gold standard and what we ought to be doing is, as I say, take a system-wide perspective, listen to uh, the crowns, listen to the defense counsel, fund the system, fund the crowns, fund the legal aid system so that we can have a more efficient system. Maybe. Uh, put your energy into uh, staffing the courts. You know, Jacques Gallant of the Toronto Star is doing excellent reporting on the fact that we have a courthouse, a new fabulous courthouse in Toronto that does not have staff to run trials. Uh, and so let's look at the system and let's let's fix and repair the real holes in, in, instead of trying to win easy political points. Danielle Robitaille, I really appreciate the time. Thank you for that. Thanks, Michael. Time now to take a look at the other stories making headlines today, starting with more back and forth between Ottawa and Queen's Park over the fate of a major EV battery plant. We have a $120 billion plan. What we are saying though, and we are very clear on this, is the province has to contribute its fair share. That is entirely reasonable. And that is what I am hearing. That's what I heard from MPs at Finance Committee, MPs from other provinces. That is what I am hearing from premiers of other provinces. And that is entirely reasonable. 
But the Ontario Premier says he is disappointed with the federal response to Stellantis, which has halted construction in Windsor. Doug Ford wants to know what the federal government thinks is Ontario's fair share in matching American subsidies. He says the province has offered Stellantis the same amount as Volkswagen, $500 million, and that Ontario cannot afford to lose the $5 billion plant. It is uh, really important that Canadians understand how, how, how difficult it is to save lives in the face of the toxic drug supply and how important it is that we use all the tools at our disposal and particularly I think that we want people to understand that uh, Mr. Polyev has said that he would um, defund the safe consumption sites which since 2017 have reversed 46,000 uh, overdoses. Well, that is Dr. Carolyn Bennett, the Minister for Mental Health and Addictions, saying she welcomes a conservative motion that will be debated in the House of Commons tomorrow. It calls on the Trudeau government to reverse its initiative to provide addicts a safer drug supply to prevent overdose deaths and get people into treatment. Conservatives argue it's done nothing but create a cheap drug supply and would rather have that money redirected to recovery programs. And two former Supreme Court justices will help decide what we learn about two scientists who were fired from a high-security federal lab in Manitoba. Ian Binney and Marshall Rothstein are joining former federal judge Eleanor Dawson. They'll work with a new committee of MPs reviewing documents and making rulings on the release of classified information. For two years, opposition parties have pressed for more details on the removal of these scientists and the transfer of deadly viruses from the Winnipeg lab to China. To Seoul, South Korea, where the Prime Minister continues his visit. Earlier today, it was announced Canada and the East Asian country agreed to cooperate on supply chains for critical minerals. Just one way where the two nations are looking for cooperation in order to reduce dependency on China. We recognize both of us, that China is an important economic partner, not just in the region, but around the world. But we need to be clear-eyed about where we cooperate with China on issues like climate change, as Canada hosted COP15 on biodiversity uh, in Montreal, co-hosted it with China. But we need to know where we're going to be competing with China on economic grounds and where we need to challenge China on human rights and other issues. It's something that we will uh, both be continuing to do in ways that make sense for our own countries and our own situations. Joining us now is James Trottier, who is a fellow of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. He's also a former diplomat who served extensively in Asia, including the Canadian Embassy in Seoul. Mr. Trottier, thank you for joining us today. No, thank you for having me. So earlier on, we heard the Prime Minister uh, really talking about the need not only to be friends with South Korea, but also best friends, as he said, given the current geopolitical landscape. When it comes to global security, how important is this visit for Canada, especially when it comes to China? Well, the visit is, um, is uh, very important. Um, it's actually the first visit by a Canadian Prime Minister since, ni since in nine years, which was at the time when the uh, free trade agreement between Canada and Korea was being uh, uh, finalized. And since that time, of course, there have been a lot of developments in the world generally, but in East Asia uh, specifically. And uh, there's also the ongoing um, uh, challenge uh, in regards to China. 
and the ongoing provocations regarding North Korea. So important on, on both sides. In terms of the South Korean uh, viewpoint here, why is it important for Canada, in particular the Canadian Prime Minister, to be visiting Seoul? Well, I would say if the importance comes from what I would call the kind of headline announcement from the visit, which is that South Korea and Canada would cooperate on clean energy economy, critical mineral supplies, and the North Korea threat. Those were the major themes pursued by the Prime Minister in his speech to the National Assembly, in his meeting with President Yoon, in the joint statement after the meeting, in the press conference after the meeting. And, and this, for, sorry, no, sorry. I was going to say for, for North, for, uh, for South Korea, um, Canada uh, remains a uh, critical um, uh, part of the supply chain in terms of access to critical mineral supplies. Mm -hmm. And just to connect the dots for people, this is about trying to find a source other than the People's Republic of China for this. Yes, it's, uh, it's as the Prime Minister says, uh, to find uh, uh, a, a clean and a uh, secure uh, source. And both the Prime Minister and uh, President Yoon in, uh, in the past, for instance, in September when President Yoon came to Ottawa, talked about the synergies between the Canadian economy and the South Korean economy and the Canadian um, aspirations and South Korean aspirations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, as well, it, when we, we look at this, of course, South Korea and Canada has a long-term relationship, which I think many Canadians are not so aware about. Yes, well, people are aware perhaps more of the uh, Korean War when uh, so many uh, young Canadians uh, went as uh, military and uh, stood with the South Koreans and with um, other uh, soldiers from other countries in um, uh, repulsing the uh, the North Korean attack. But Canadian ties uh, actually go back uh, a long way to the 19th century. And the Prime Minister actually alluded to that in his in his comments to the National Assembly uh, today, where he talked about uh, the, the people who had come out in the 19th century. Um, these were uh, uh, missionaries and uh, medical personnel who uh, actually uh, helped to put in place a lot of the a lot of the institutions in uh, in South Korea um, uh, today. Uh, but also, he talked about the people-to-people -people ties uh, of today involving uh, students and scientists and visitors. And he also talked about the the, the diaspora of uh, Korean Canadians in Canada, The uh, as he said, the fourth biggest group of um, people of Korean origin in any country in the world. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you did mention the Canada-Korea Free Trade Agreement, and you yourself uh, uh, played a, a good role in making sure that that was actually uh, adopted by this country. Uh, in terms of what's happening right now with this Stellantis battery plant in Windsor, Ontario, LG, a Korean company, is a part of that. Does that kind of send any type of chill to South Korea about Canada as a place for investment? Well, actually, on the contrary, I think that it, it points out the importance of the visit at this time. Um, the Prime Minister and the Industry Minister will be attending a state banquet or attending a state banquet uh, where the CEO of LG, which is a partner in that plant, LG is a major Korean corporation, the CEO will be at that dinner. And the Industry Minister has said that they plan to uh, speak to the CEO uh, to ensure that uh, he understands the importance of, uh, of uh, the plant and he understands the importance of LG 
um, uh, fulfilling its uh, its commitments. So it's um, an ideal opportunity to do that. And I'm sure that the uh, prime minister will have made the same point to the president in their uh, in their meeting. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, uh, shoring up relations with like-minded Asian countries is certainly part of the government's Indo-Pacific strategy. How does this, this South Korean trip set up the G7 meeting in Hiroshima, Japan, later this week? Well, I think that um, uh, there are uh, several uh, themes uh, in the uh, in the visit to uh, to Japan. The, the Japanese themselves have set up the uh, uh, the theme as uh, as sort of peace, and they've uh, they've uh, uh, they're holding it specifically in uh, in Hiroshima, uh, but there are actually are um, uh, several uh, major themes at the meeting. Um, including geopolitical and global security issues, economic resilience, climate change, and energy. And uh, China actually fits under the, the first one, that is to say, uh, geopolitical and global security issues. Um, well, um, uh, and North Korea fits under that as well. But China also fits under, under uh, all the rest. And uh, a major geopolitical and global issue that will be discussed at the G7 is, of course, uh, Ukraine. Um, another one will be security on the uh, Korean Peninsula, and I expect another one will be uh, will be Taiwan. And um, for Canada, the uh, clean energy, uh, the clean uh, economy uh, transition uh, was expected, and it turned out to be the case. Was expected to be a major priority for the Prime Minister's visit to South Korea, and it's also expected to uh, be a priority for him at the G7 and and what he wants to do in both cases is to link uh, climate change with increased security. James Trauche, thank you this for this. I really appreciate uh, your experience and your insight. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. And that is our program for this Wednesday evening. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. We'll see you again tomorrow.